0: and this is Housing Wire Daily. Today's episode features an exclusive interview with Atticus LeBlanc, who is the founder of PadSplit, a company that claims it's disrupting the affordable housing marketplace. LeBlanc, who is also the co-founder of Stryant Construction and Management, discusses how the nation's eviction moratoriums could cause long-term issues for housing affordability and why he believes America needs more upzoning for help with the affordable housing crisis. But before we listen, here's a brief word on Housing Wire's newest podcast. Welcome to the Real Trending Podcast, where your host, Tracy Velt, managing editor of Real Trends, interviews the brightest minds in real estate. Brokerage leaders, top agents, team leaders, and industry experts share their success secrets, trends, and lessons learned navigating this ever-changing industry.
1: Hello, HousingWire listeners. Today, I'm joined with Atticus LeBlanc, the founder of Bad Split, a company that claims it's disrupting the affordable housing marketplace. Thanks for joining us on Housing My Daily, Atticus.
2: Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Of course. So listeners today, Atticus, who's also the co-founder of Styrant Construction and Management, will speak to us about how the nation's eviction moratoriums could cause long-term issues for housing affordability and why he believes America needs more upzoning to help with the affordable housing crisis. So Atticus, before we dive into today's conversation, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got started in real estate?
2: Sure. Uh, yes, yeah, so I've actually spent my entire career in real estate, uh, about 20 years here now in Atlanta. Kind of fell into it through a, a course in college and uh, really, I guess, uh, cut my teeth. I, was, uh, I, I discovered in 2003 that I could buy a foreclosed home uh, to live in for cheaper than I could rent an apartment. So uh, that, uh, that was really the foundational experience for me and have been, uh, have been investing in real estate and just intrigued by housing, really for, uh, for about 25 years now.
1: All right, now let's discuss your company. As I was researching to prepare for this interview, I discovered you've been featured in a number of publications, including Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, TechCrunch, and more. And while each of these publications have approached discussing your company differently, what really stuck out to me is the comparison you often get to Airbnb. In fact, a publication recently claimed that your company was aiming to be the Airbnb of affordable housing. Now that's an interesting comparison and makes me curious on whether or not your model is more single family or multifamily focused. Can you explain had splits model and how it's challenging the affordable housing marketplace?
2: Yeah, I mean, I really think the uh, the comparison just stems from the fact that whereas we leverage vacant space or empty and wasted space inside existing dwellings for long-term affordable housing, of course, Airbnb does that for uh, short-term stays and vacation rentals. Uh, and so that's that's really where the uh, comparisons, I think, begin and, and frankly end. The the biggest other commonality is just that uh, we know that for workforce housing, accessibility is a huge barrier that that we need to address, uh, where uh, frontline workers don't have the either income or savings or ability to uh, overcome certain barriers, whether that's credit or previous history, um, to access housing options. And so we have to be very much an on-demand service that provides the immediacy of short-term flexible options, but also still conducts the underwriting that would be expected in a traditional apartment or multifamily or or rental house type of setting.
1: All right. So as we discuss affordable housing, we have to focus on three primary factors, the COVID-19 pandemic, the nation's financial health, and a significant lack of housing inventory. Each of these factors in some way have impacted how Americans view home buying, whether they've been relocating to a new market, downsizing to meet cost, or entering as a first-time home buyer. In your point of view, how has the housing market changed in relation to these factors and has it made finding affordable housing easier or much harder?
2: Uh, There's no question that it's made it harder. I mean, if anything, though, I, I appreciate that at least the pandemic has brought affordable housing and housing our frontline workers into the forefront of people's minds. Uh, but the, the underlying problem hasn't changed. And uh, a lot of the factors you just mentioned uh, exacerbated what is a supply shortage uh, in, uh, in the market here in the U.S. today. And I think that's really at the, the root of all of these affordability issues. It's a simple supply and demand problem. Uh, and as supply has been constrained for a long, long time now, uh, and uh, that was only really exacerbated through the pandemic, and so as a result, we've seen that, uh, that the access of, uh, of those options to people who need them most uh, has been more limited. Uh, and, and I really think uh, we'll, we'll probably see a theme throughout the podcast that, that it, we keep coming back to a supply demand problem. And uh, the way that, that we view ourselves in helping to solve that problem is taking the cheapest uh, possible housing that we can think of, which is the space that is already built, Uh, So uh, new construction costs are out of control, commodity prices have skyrocketed, there's labor shortages in lots of different areas, uh, regulations uh, in in different jurisdictions that make it much harder to build and create new supply, whereas we can tap into the the housing space that already exists and uh, and create supply much more efficiently, much more quickly, Uh, and that's really how we, we start to address those supply constraints.
1: Yes, inventory has been a problem as lumber costs have heightened. This brings me to my next question, which talks about affordable housing and minority communities. I learned a lot about your work, which centers in Atlanta. It's a market that has a strong minority community. In my previous question, we discussed how the COVID-19 pandemic has financially hurt many Americans. I think this is especially so in Atlanta's market as data shows many minority communities have disproportionately been impacted by the virus by either becoming sick or losing jobs in relation to the pandemic. This is affected their financial health, therefore impacting their housing situations. The last time we saw a similar situation was during the housing crash when the foreclosure rate heightened for many communities of color. That being said, this time around, the government has enacted moratoriums to prevent another foreclosure wave. But do you think these moratoriums will allow more Americans to stay in their homes, therefore supporting the housing market? Or do you think they could eventually lead to a larger
2: problem? Yeah. So, I mean, part of our philosophy in looking at each of these issues is just the value of early intervention. Uh, we we do weekly all-inclusive payments uh, when we provide supportive services with nonprofit partners uh, and actually raised over $100,000 uh, in eviction prevention funds to uh, to provide temporary financial assistance for folks through the pandemic. And, and so our, our philosophy gets to early intervention. And I think the, the eviction moratorium is, has done two things. One, it hasn't really helped the underlying cause, which is the supply shortage. Um, and although it's provided some short-term relief for some people, I do certainly fear the long-term effects and unintended consequences uh, of those moratorium where uh, we're, not, we're not using those early intervention mechanisms and you're creating some strange misalignments uh, that that i don 't think will ultimately help a lot of folks and could cause existing housing providers to uh, raise prices to raise housing deposits uh, for for rental deposits um, and and ultimately uh, i don 't think address some of those underlying supply issues and we 've effectively just kicked the can down the road uh, until we 're going to have thousands and thousands of of potential evictions and those financial deficits just get deeper and deeper to the point where when you're an individual living paycheck to paycheck, it becomes impossible to to get out of that hole. And the the best thing that we can do is to try to provide more direct relief for those families that are suffering and and those housing providers that right now are expected to bear the burden of that cost. Uh, And you really need to support both sides to create uh, just a, a calamity downstream. We have, in the case of Atlanta, tens of thousands of folks that that are are sitting there under eviction, uh, and in the meantime, asking those housing providers to continue to house them for free. Uh, and and I don't think it's it's really fair to either side, and we need to support both ends of the spectrum.
1: That does tie back in affordable housing, as people in these markets, as you've said, are living check to check, need housing, but lack affordable inventory in these markets. This brings me to the next question, which focuses on upzoning. Uh, for those of you who don't know, upzoning is the practice of increasing zoning density within a certain neighborhood to increase how many people can live in a particular market. Um, another market that has practiced this is Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, it's followed this model, and many in its marketplace have claimed it's led to more affordable housing. Um, after researching your company, I discovered Pat Spitz's model encourages its creation. In your own words, how does it introduce more affordable housing to the marketplace?
2: Yeah, the, the easiest way to, to look at this, I think, is uh, to view housing in America historically. And uh, leaving aside the, the for the moment that these zoning regulations were actively uh, discriminating against uh, low-income people of color uh, from their inception in the early 20th century, uh, and a lot of that, that burden is still with us today. Uh, if you look at just the the data of population and housing over the last seventy years, you've seen um, a dramatic increase, almost threefold, in terms of the square footage of a single family home increase. Uh, and at the same time, we all acknowledge that the size of families and the size of households has come down dramatically. Where we have people that are living much longer, or we have uh, younger generations that are. Living alone much, much longer than has historically been the case. And so, as a result, our family makeup in no way matches our current existing housing stock that is designed for nuclear families that comprise no more than 20% of the total population. And so, even though only 12.5% of our housing stock are studios and one bedrooms, you have 20% of the population uh, that is nuclear families. And so, that means you've got 87.5% of the housing stock that's geared to those 20% of people. And it just doesn't make any sense. So it, it makes a, a lot more sense from our perspective to be able to reallocate that space using technology uh, that, that facilitates the levels of trust and accountability that are necessary to build those relationships. And it's a much cheaper way to ensure that everyone has access to affordable housing. Uh, and upzoning is a huge part of that um, because without allowing... Uh, multiple unrelated individuals to live together. Uh, you are precluding affordability for for people who uh, cannot afford to pay a deposit or pay the rent on an entire single family home, uh, and uh, you're taking those units off the market completely, uh, and thereby significantly constricting an already uh, limited source of of supply and and increasing prices. Across the board,
1: do you think upzoning is likely to take off across the nation? And have you been met with any critics for this model itself?
2: Yeah. So I mean, listen. Uh, anytime you're increasing the supply, particularly in uh, historic single-family neighborhoods, uh, there's there's a natural antipathy towards uh, those types of people moving to my neighborhood, uh, and I think that's, that's to be expected. And I mean, look, it's the law of supply and demand. If you, if you limit supply, demand is going to increase and prices are going to go up. And any single family homeowner, their number one concern is going to be housing values uh, and, and their property values. And unfortunately, that is diametrically opposed to housing affordability. So I think those, those criticisms are natural. But at some point, when you look at the rate of price appreciation and rental growth, over the last 10 years you have to say wait a second Uh, when no one who works in my community uh, whether that is the the woman behind my grocery counter or my amazon delivery driver uh, or the clerk at the municipal office uh, can afford to live here that's a major problem and it, it certainly doesn't align with with our values uh, as uh, as a populace of people that believes in equal opportunity, theoretically. Uh, and so at what point do we as, uh, as a community step in to say, you know what? The people who serve my community do deserve an opportunity to live there. Uh, and here are the choices that we need to make to ensure that uh, there aren't millions of bedrooms that just go wasted every night uh, because of a hundred-year-old uh, zoning law that uh, the, the basis was originally racial discrimination. And, and I think that's a choice that we have to make. And, and to me, there's, there's no question, uh, where to put the line in the sand.
1: All right. Thank you for answering that, Atticus. Before we wrap today, is there anything else we need to know about pad split or affordable housing in America?
2: Uh, tons. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, um, I, I could I could talk about this for hours but uh, but certainly for for pad split I mean it's just that our, our vision is ultimately uh, to ensure that anyone with housing space anywhere in the world has the ability to take that space and use it to create more affordable housing uh, and it is very much a uh, do good and do well model uh, I, I think we have to change the the conversation. Um, around affordable housing and affordable housing creation and start to understand we need to align incentives uh, between the housing providers who are very often and in most cases driven by the bottom line uh, and align those incentives uh, so that you can make affordable housing uh, a viable business opportunity because if you can do that you can show how affordable housing can be profitable uh, then that's ultimately how you're going to reach scale Uh, and, and you have to consider the incentives of all the parties involved uh, if we're serious about solving this problem quickly, because the the way that we've been trying to do it, um, through traditional subsidy programs and low-income housing tax credits and and other uh, tax incentive programs, we would we would take a hundred and twenty years to create the amount of affordable housing uh, that we already need today, and and so when folks give lip service to the idea of innovation. Uh, I think it's really important to consider that we have to make a lot of these difficult choices, and we have to make them now if we're going to solve this issue.
1: All right. Thank you for joining us today, Atticus. Appreciate it. And listeners, thanks for tuning in to Housing Wire Daily. The housing industry is looking to its leaders for answers. That's why each week, the Housing News Podcast invites a new mortgage, fintech, or real estate executive to the show to provide its listeners with more perspective on the announcements and news stories crossing Housing Wire's news desk. Hosted by Sarah Wheeler and produced by Elcina Lloyd, the Housing News Podcast is now available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more.
0: That's a wrap for today's episode of Housing Wire Daily. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts and join us again tomorrow.